Welcome. You are listening to Mountain View Scattered. This is an audio companion to our weekly church gatherings. It is a way to stay connected while you are away and to learn more about our community, how we can best reach and serve it. I'm your host, Wade. You know, that last song that we sang, it's interesting because uh, Steve and Robin and I talked about it this morning. You know, this is traditionally now a very loud song. It's a very triumphant song that we sing together. And here we are, uh, very modestly. Uh, our number is modest, right? Our volume is modest. And yet the reality is when we're studying through the Gospel of Mark and we see Jesus, uh, God, He is great, right? Uh, he is strong. He is a healer. He uses, he has all the power of God because he is God. And yet what happens to Jesus? He gets crucified. Right? The early church, when we think about the early church or when we think about the persecuted church today, can they sing that song? Because our God is... Yes, they can. Yes, they can. And Christians have sung something like that throughout all of history, even when they are being slaughtered. Why? Because it's true. Because it's true. Our God is healer even when we are sick and dying. So, can we sing that song? Now, just for the record, Robin did a great job, but can we sing that song in a whimper? Yeah, we should. You didn't whimper? You didn't whimper? We, we can, and we should. We can, and we should. Okay. I don't know what I did with that clicker. I, I don't like this clicker. That's okay. This morning, Gospel of Mark, three themes that we've been looking at. You should know these all by heart now, right? A king, his kingdom, and the call to discipleship, to follow him into that kingdom, which is a constant and continual call. Last week, while we were together, we had this focus. Jesus called you because he saves sinners. And you have been called to be near sinners. Jesus called you because he saves sinners. You were, you are, and yet you're justified in his eyes. You're made right in God's eyes. And now you have been called to be near sinners. This week, ignore the, the uh, verses up at the top there. Things have changed for better and for good. And Jesus is your righteousness. Things have changed for better and for good. And Jesus is your righteousness. That is our focus this week. Here's a question for you. What pleases God? Maybe to make it more personal, how can you please God? Now, our kids at Kids Church, if I ask them that question, they have an answer to it, okay? They say, by loving him 
and doing what he commands, right? How can you glorify God? Maybe it's another way of asking the question, by loving him and doing what he commands. Okay, that's a good church answer. That's a good church answer, and we're teaching our kids that answer because it's the right answer, okay? But let's say you weren't in church right now. What would your answer to that be? How can you know that you are right with God? How can you know that you are right with God? Another question that we haven't gotten to yet with our kids' church is, how is Jesus our righteousness? His perfect, his perfect life counts for us, is the answer to that. Do you believe that? Do you believe that all the time? Do you believe that every day? Or, like me, or like many other Christians that you know, or like the average person walking down the street, if you were to ask them that question, how can you know that you are right with God? How can you glorify God? How can you please Him? Their answer would probably be something like, well, you know, I, I do this and I don't do that. And that is the answer that we are all naturally inclined to give. We all want to give an answer that sounds something like, well, you know me, I'm, I'm pious. You know, I, I act holy to be seen as holy. Therefore, God loves me. We want to think that the first answer out of our mouth would be, Jesus is my righteousness, right? But it's most often not whether it's in our actions, the way that we relate to others, the answer is usually, well, I do this and I stay away from that. It's not just the answer given by worldly people that are far from God. Everyone wants to answer that question in a way that makes it sound like they are working diligently to help God save them. God saves sinners. Jesus saves sinners. And this is where we find ourselves in the story of Jesus' life as Mark gives it to us here. It doesn't seem like a big transition, but today we've actually moved into kind of a new era of Jesus' ministry. Last week we saw him call Levi, and he started doing something very strange he started sitting down and eating with sinners and tax collectors. Ooh, the audacity of that man, Jesus, right? And this week, we're going to see this opposition to Jesus, this, this questioning of Jesus start to develop a little bit more. The questioning about who Jesus is or why he acts the way that he does is going to become a little bit more harsh, a little bit more pointed, and people are going to be asking him, Jesus, you know, I'm sorry, but are you actually holy? Because it doesn't look like you live a holy life. Are you actually righteous? Are you actually a teacher of the law? Because it doesn't seem like that's what you're doing. Your life isn't holding up to your teaching. We see that in verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees, 
Okay, whoa, time out. Two totally different groups of people here. John, that is John the Baptist, who's in prison at this point, his disciples were fasting, and the Pharisees, right, the teachers of the law, were fasting. And people came to him and said, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but Jesus, your disciples do not fast? Now that seems like a legitimate question, right? What is fasting? Okay, it's, it's not eating for a little while. It's not eating for a little while to somehow make yourself closer to God. Is that what we're talking about with, with fasting? Okay, kind of, kind of. Um, in the Old Testament, we only see one law given by God to fast or one time to fast, and that is on the Day of Atonement the day when all of Israel's sins would be covered over by blood sacrifices. One fast. Throughout the entire course of the year, one fast. In uh, the later prophets, we see some other fasts that are taking place for specific reasons. Because God's people are seeking healing. This isn't a bad thing. It's a good thing. Uh, Here's what fasting is. It's a desire to be closer to Jesus. It's a desire to be closer to God. And it seems like kind of a strange thing to do, like somehow magically, if I don't eat food, I'll get closer to Jesus. No, not exactly. And here's why. Um, You can eat, you cannot eat as a diet, and maybe you'll lose some weight. I commend you in that, okay? But here's the deal. When we fast, we understand our weakness, and we understand our need for help. When we do not have food sitting in front of us and, are, and we're hungry, we understand that there is someone that blesses us with food. When we fast, and the very next day we get sick because we skipped food for like 12 hours, <laughs> um, we realize that we are not invincible. We realize that we need God. So what should fasting do? Fasting should drive you to the word. It should drive you to prayer. But what are these Pharisees doing here? What are these disciples of John doing here? They're fasting for a specific reason as well. They're fasting because, well, and... For them, it was two days a week. They fasted two days a week, no matter what. Why? Because they thought that this would somehow make them more holy, more acceptable in God's eyes. God, look, I'm putting aside this food for you to worship you. I'm doing this work for you. I'm making myself more acceptable for you. Which is interesting because... On the Day of Atonement, the only fast that was actually given to God's first people, Israel, it wasn't a focus on the work that they were doing for God. It was a focus on the work that God did for them by forgiving their sins through a blood sacrifice. So now we have these other fasts thrown in here. But we would be remiss to just simply read this and think, okay, no, they have the best intentions. 
Okay? No, no, I'm sure the Pharisees, I, I gave them the benefit of the doubt last week. I did. And we should. Yet, if we were to go over to Matthew chapter 6, we read this. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces and their fast, so that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you that they have received the reward. But when you fast, Jesus says, just get ready for the day. Act normal. <laughs> when you fast, anoint your head. Wash your face. And when you're fa- and that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Who are these hypocrites? In Matthew chapter 6, verse 16. When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. Well, simply speaking, hypocrites in this case is because people are fasting to say that they want to be closer to God and yet they're, they're looking ugly, right? So that everyone knows that they're sad and they're mourning and they're going out into the world not saying, oh, no, I'm fasting for the Lord today, right? But they're saying, oh, no, I'm fine. No, I'm fine. Everything's good. Are you hungry? You look hungry, right? This is what they're doing. They're not putting on their makeup. They're not fixing their hair. They're making sure that everyone knows that they're mourning about something. Well, in Matthew chapter uh, 23, we read at least six times, Jesus calls the scribes and the Pharisees hypocrites. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. So who are these hypocrites that Jesus is talking about? Well, later on we see that he attributes uh, this title of hypocrite to the scribes and the Pharisees. What they were doing is they were trying to work themselves closer to God. They were misunderstanding what the law of God was for, what the commands of God were for, and they thought that somehow they could bring themselves closer to Him. In Isaiah chapter 58, verse 5, we read this, and this is God speaking through Isaiah using some sarcasm, okay? He's being sharply funny with his people here. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? (laughs) Basically what he's saying is, look... You can go around and you can be sad and you can cover yourself with ashes and act like someone has died, but that kind of outward obedience doesn't mean that you are inwardly obedient. It's like we read, whether from the psalmist or from Isaiah, that what good are these sacrifices? They have no heart behind them. So what good is the Pharisees fasting? if it has no heart behind them. So who's fasting here? Well, we have Pharisees fasting, and we have disciples of John fasting. Who's not fasting? Jesus' disciples. In fact, what are they doing? They're partying. 
Okay? <laughs> they are, they're literally partying. They're at a tax collector's house just the other day, and they're partying. Um, whoa. And so, in fact, not only are they not following the, the code of conduct that teachers follow, teachers of the law follow, but they're doing the exact opposite. They're celebrating. Okay, now so far, in Mark's gospel, Jesus has um, shown himself to be someone very important, right through miracles and through teaching. But more specifically, here are some things that we've looked at that show Jesus as God. Um, he firstly called to himself fishers of men, which we read in the prophet Isaiah that God would set out fishers that would go out into the captivity of his people and bring his people back in, okay? So Jesus is doing that. Jesus is doing something that God said he would do. He's calling fishers of men to himself. He has authority over evil. He's driving out sickness. He's taking sickness on himself, potentially when he touches a leper, but instead the leper is healed. He forgives sins. He calls himself the Son of Man. He teaches with his own authority and no one else's. And this week, we're going to see that he calls himself the Bridegroom, which is very strange language. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the Bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the Bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. All right, so now, this is a rule within a rule, okay? So the Pharisees, they said that, no, 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 you got to fast two times a week. Um, this is what makes you holy, except for if you're a part of a wedding party or going to a wedding that could last a week or two weeks, then don't fast. Skip the fasting because it would be extremely rude to be offered someone's food during the most frankly, exciting time of their entire lives and to reject it. So fast, or don't fast, feast, right? Okay, so here's the situation when it comes to weddings back then. Yeah, it would last a while, uh, a week, two weeks. Um, also, it was, uh, if you were a part of a wedding party, like if you're the groom's best friend and you're helping him through the process, um, you didn't have to go to work for two weeks, okay? If you were a groom or a bride, you didn't have to work for two weeks. You were served food. You were feasting freely. Um, for this time and in this place, to be doing physical labor for your entire life with Sundays, or rather Saturdays off work at this point, right? Man, you got to go to a wedding and you got to do Nothing but celebrate, encourage one another, give speeches, read God's word. This is a pretty great thing. And Jesus says, you guys know this rule. You don't come to the wedding with a sad face and say, oh no, I don't eat right now because I'm fasting. Right? That's not what you do. That's rude. Not even the Pharisees were complete party poopers, okay? Not even the Pharisees were complete par party poopers. This was the happiest week of someone's life. You were expected to be cheerful, to 
to eat and drink and be merry. But then in verse 20, things get serious. So Jesus says, they're not going to fast when they're with the bridegroom. He calls himself a bridegroom. It's very strange. We'll come to that in just one second. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in that day. In Isaiah 54, verse 5, we read this. For your maker, God, speaking to his people, is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. In Isaiah 53, uh, verse 8, we, we see this. By oppression and judgment... He was taken away. And for his generation, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living and stricken for the transgression of my people. All right. So, two thoughts here that we need to put together. Um, oftentimes in the Old Testament, God is seen as the groom, he is the husband. God's people, Israel, are his bride. Um, and here Jesus is insinuating, he's saying, I'm the bridegroom. And these people that are following me, these fishers of men behind me, they can't fast because they're with me, the bridegroom. They're a part of my wedding party. Do you know how rude it would be for them to fast right now? There will be a day coming when they fast. That day when I am not leaving them, taken away from them. We could look at the Greek and it almost sounds like snatched, violently snatched out of someone's hand. Much like what we see here. It was by oppression and judgment that he was taken away in Isaiah 53. He was cut off from the land of the living. He was stricken. In a sense, Jesus is very blatantly saying, I am God. I am the groom. I am the husband. No one should be mourning right now when they're in the presence of the bridegroom. The bridegroom being taken away, this is the first reference in Mark's gospel that he makes that Jesus makes about something that's going to happen in the future, a suffering, a taking away of him, the cross. And it's from this point on, throughout the entire Gospel of Mark, that the cross is going to start casting a shadow over everything that we study. It's going to be casting darkness over everything that we study. Because we've read it before and we know what's coming. But Jesus also clearly knows what is coming. He's going to get snatched away. He's going to get taken away. And this should be a shock to you. Picture it like this. You're at a wedding, right? Everyone's giving speeches. The bride and the groom are sitting there looking at each other, making everyone else sick because of how they're looking at each other. And all of a sudden, the groom stands up to say thank you to everyone, and he drops over dead. Everyone was eating and having cake and cheerful, 
And then all of a sudden, it turns into a funeral. This language from Jesus should shock us. This should feel like we are at that wedding and the groom suddenly dies. All right, so Jesus says there is a time to be fasting. When? When he gets taken away. When he gets taken away. Um, You know, we don't know exactly what the disciples did. We all know that they panicked after Jesus was crucified, right? Um, But we do see on the road to Emmaus when Jesus is talking to two of his disciples, and they're saying, oh, didn't you hear about Jesus? We thought he was the one. Uh, all this stuff was going on, and then he died, and we don't know what to do now. And then Jesus goes back to their house, and he breaks bread. Did they, break bre- Did they offer him food? Did they sit him down and say, oh, stranger, won't you please come eat with us? No, what we do see, though, is that Jesus is insinuating, hey, don't worry, the groom is with you. Right? Jesus goes to his other disciples. He appears in the room, and everyone's amazed, and They don't seem to be eating because Jesus says, hey, don't you guys have any food? Well, yeah, we have some some dried up fish. You want that? Yeah. What does Jesus do? Breaks open that fish and starts handing it out. Why would he do that? Because the groom is present. Where is God's kingdom present? Where the king is. Where is the wedding feast present? Where Jesus is. Jesus is the groom. Verse 21, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this. Uh, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old and and a worse tear is made. Okay, we get that idea. Uh, We get that idea. Actually, the shirt that I'm wearing right now, I have to wear a jacket with it because I have so many patches on it. But I I can't give it up. I can't give up the shirt. I love it. Okay? And so, (laughs) so every time I take it to the seamstress, she looks at me like, yeah, I'm not going to save that for you. And then I say, no, please save it for me, okay? Save it for me. And she has to make the patches so big so it doesn't tear, right? Because this shirt's thin, it's weak. Um, and if she sews on a little patch to fix a little hole, it's just going to ruin everything. And then I really will have to get rid of the shirt. Um, honestly, it's kind of unclear what Jesus is saying here. What about a patch, and what about new cloth, and who's the new cloth? Is Jesus, are you speaking in code? Yeah, actually, he is speaking in code. Let's, let's keep reading to see, see what's going on here. Verse 22, and no one puts new wine in an old wineskin. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Okay, here's what we can say. Something new is happening here. There's something old in this scene, and there's something new in this scene. There's an old way of thinking in this scene. And this old way of thinking is waiting on a Messiah. That we just got to get ourselves right because Messiah is going to come. Who were the Pharisees waiting on? Why did they keep the law? 
Well, they kept the law because they thought that if they only kept the law, God would see how much his people loved him and they, that he would send the Messiah to save them and rescue them from enemy invaders that had taken over the land. Why? What were John's disciples fasting for? Why were they waiting? What were they waiting for? Were they waiting for John to get out of prison? No, they were waiting for the Messiah. And they somehow missed John's memo that, look, here he comes. There's an old thought happening here. And this old thought is that somehow our keeping of the law makes us right in front of God. And that was never the case. Somehow this old thought is creeping in that we still need to keep looking right in front of God because the Messiah has not yet come. And Jesus says, no. I've got new wine. We need a new wineskin. There's a hole in this shirt. And this is new cloth. It's not going to work. We need a whole new shirt. In Matthew chapter 13, we read this. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. This man's willing to get rid of everything that he had, all the old stuff that he had, because of this beautiful new thing sitting in front of him. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, what's going on here? This person that seems to have all these beautiful things finds the beautiful thing. The most perfect thing and gives up everything that they have to go and get that most beautiful thing. That new thing. We could say what a wineskin is. Um, it's leather. It's animal hide into a bottle. Some places in the world, they still use these things, right? I love it. In Spain, they still use them, and they shoot the wine into their mouth from a distance out of these leather jugs, okay? But the problem is that wineskins, just like all sort of leather items, when they get wet, they start to dry. And then if you put new wine in there that's still creating alcohol, it's going to grow and it's going to shrink, and then one day it's just going to explode. Now, we live in a very wine-filled place, right? <laughs> um, if a bottle of wine breaks, there's about a million other bottles of wine in this town. But if you worked so hard for this bottle of wine, and then all of a sudden the wineskin breaks and it's all at your feet and all the time that you spent sewing the wineskin, all the time that you, meant you spent making the wine, what a waste. Jesus says, look, there's new wine that has come and if you put it in this old skin, you're going to waste all this hard work. The Pharisees, disciples of John, your work isn't all bad but you've got no heart behind it. You're wasting this hard work. 
You're wasting this obedience to the law because you think that you can save yourself. You're not thinking that I can save you. Is what Jesus is saying here. Paul would later tell us in 2 Corinthians, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and the new has come. Jesus is saying this to the Pharisees, to everyone standing around him. If you're still looking to make yourself right with God, you've got it wrong. Because that old has passed away and something new has come. Don't try to put my wine into old wineskins because it's going to burst. Don't try to patch up your old righteousness with this new little piece of righteousness. You need something brand new. You need to be made brand new. And as we've already seen throughout the Gospel of Mark, this is exactly what Jesus is promising to them. Things have changed. Things have changed. For better and for good. For always. Jesus is now your righteousness. Jesus is now your righteousness. You don't have to find your righteousness for yourself. Jesus is your righteousness. Uh, this little meal is an act of remembrance. Uh, we're called to remember something. Uh, not only Christ's work for us, but also that through Christ's work, we are forgiven. Christian, this morning, in case you didn't hear me a couple weeks ago, you are forgiven. This meal is a sign of that, and it should be a comfort to you. Uh, this meal is an act of community. When we eat this bread and we drink this cup together, we are reminded that we are not alone. Uh, that we have a family sitting around us, and we know we are family because we drink from the same cup, as it were. It is an act of dependence because we are reminded that we need our felt needs and our real need to be met by Jesus. This meal is an act of participation. It's odd that Jesus gave us two physical acts um, to be visual reminders of his person and work, right? Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Uh, we are asked to physically eat and drink as a very real reminder, a physical, real reminder that Jesus attaches himself to us. That we have been made one with Christ. And this meal is a picture of that good news. And lastly, this meal is an act of formation. Forming us, teaching us. It is one of the ways that we grow and that we grow together. This meal teaches, it preaches in Luke, Jesus says this, And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Or as we typically read in 1 Corinthians, 
for Paul saying, For I have received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you eat, as you drink it, in remembrance of me. What we saw there between Luke's accounts and then Paul's retelling, we see this. Jesus' body was given and his blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Unlike any other relationship in our life, no matter how good it may be, Jesus guarantees forgiveness. There is no guessing, there is no wondering what you must do with your guilt. Jesus takes it all. He died because of your sin, and he was raised to defeat sin, death, and hell for you. And he is returning again for you. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you that he was crucified, dead, and buried. That he rose on the third day, ascended to heaven, and will come again in glory and judgment. Thank you that for us he kept the law, atoned for sin, and satisfied God's wrath. He took our filthy rags, and he gave us his righteous robe. He is our prophet, priest, and king, building his church interceding for us and reigning over all things. Jesus Christ, you are Lord, and we praise your name forever. Thank you that your body was broken for us so that our bodies do not have to be broken. Thank you that your blood was shed for us to cover over our sin. There's no other blood that needs to be shed for us. We thank you for that. And we eat and we drink now, thanking you, God. Amen. Thanks for listening. And remember that you were brought into the church by the saving work and person of Jesus. Also, that you are sent out to tell everyone about him. We look forward to you joining us for the next episode of Mountain View Scattered.